you make that sound like it's an easy question. Like, this is the starter question, but it's actually very hard. So that's a good question. I think uh, free will is... Free will is... Free will, I think, is... Uh, what free will is is actually a pretty complicated question. So what is free will? Hello, this is Free Will Matters. My name is Santiago Amaya, and I'm an associate professor in philosophy at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. I am the host of this podcast. Hi, I'm Manuel Vargas, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. I am also the host of this podcast. The human ability to decide and act freely requires that we think of ourselves as agents of a particular kind. We must have the ability to form intentions, to deliberate, to exercise self-control, plan for the future, and so on. At the same time, we are creatures bound by the context and the circumstances that we occupy. What kind of agents then are we? How is our agency shaped by the world in which we live? For this season, our guests will be distinguished authors and researchers working on the philosophy of agency. The philosophy of agency can be a daunting endeavor, but with their help, we will get to know better the what, the how, and the why of our agency. Welcome. For today's episode, our guest is Michael Bratman. Michael is professor of philosophy at Stanford University, where he is also the UG and Abby Birch Durfee Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences. He's the author of seven books, including the forthcoming Shared and Institutional Agency Toward a Planning Theory of Human Organization. Michael has received many, many, many awards and recognitions for his scholarship over the years. Among these, he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We're delighted to have him here with us today. Hello, Michael. Hi, terrific to be here. Michael, as one of the founding fathers of contemporary action theory, we want to ask you a question about its recent history. Before the 1980s, there was Anscombe's Intentions, and there were Davidson's Essays, and perhaps some other works. But around that decade, when you published your first book, there was an explosion of seminal work in the philosophy of action. Can you tell us a little bit about that time? What do you think explains the explosion of very influential work on the philosophy of agency at the time? Yeah, great question. So I, I think there was a lot of really good work in the 70s. So I don't want to jump over it. Al Goldman's book, of course, Gil Harman wrote an absolutely uh, groundbreaking paper called Practical Reasoning in the mid 70s. Paul Grice's APA lectures were in the 70s, where he developed these ideas of creature construction, which have had enormous influence, including on me. Harry Frankfurt's work in the 70s, Roderick Chisholm, Hector Neri Castaneda, Keith Lair. So there was a lot going on. So it wasn't as discontinuous as you might have thought. But I guess what you point out is true. There was this um, surge of books in the 80s. So it's, that's really interesting. What was going on? And I don't know exactly. I mean, my own experience uh, was just kind of thinking about the problems and it's my age was such that I published in the 80s. <laughs> but, uh, but I think I think one way to think about what was going was this. Looking back, it's you could think of Davidson's accomplishment, there were a number of accomplishments there, but one of them was he articulated a kind of synthesis of ideas to some extent from Elizabeth Anscombe, went to a large extent from Elizabeth Anscombe, but also from Willard Quine, 
and also from expected utility theory or decision theory. He, was, he found a way of putting together main themes in these very disparate threads uh, into a unified framework. And that had enormous power. And uh, I think one of the signs of that was a lot of the kind of yelling and screaming for a while were about what really were kind of, I think, kind of fascinating, but not but kind of less central questions about individuation of action and events. There's a big literature about back then about in, how to individuate these actions and events. Davidson and Anscombe had had certain views about it, and uh, there was a lot of discussion, and Goldman had a different view, Jacqueline Kim had a different view, and so on. But then I think gradually what happened was that Davidsonian synthesis, very powerful synthesis, where, of course, he didn't bring everything together, but he was able to put together important threads from Anselm's work with a response to Quine's worries about indeterminacy of translation with a framework that was friendly to decision theory. That was a powerful model that took a while for people to really come to terms with. And then I think what was happening was it was starting, of course, it was a, it was a real contribution, but to some extent, it started to unravel. And it may be that that's what was happening in the 80s. One aspect of the unraveling was what you might call the rediscovery of intention. So uh, where I think of the Sellers Castaneda tradition is one of the threads there that it's easy to lose. But those were philosophers who thought of intention as kind of found fundamental and foundational for human agency. And that wasn't the Anscombe Davidson picture because famously the, the original, the Anscombe Davidson picture intention was really a kind of characterization of activity rather than a, a state of mind that organized activity. So that started to unravel, I think. And I think uh, one of the groundbreaking sources of the unraveling was Harmon's paper in, in the mid seventies. You know, the, uh, the ideas were floating around independently of that, but, and certainly in my, in my case, it was gradually sensing of thinking that there were really deep features of distinctively human agency. Here we're going, here, here's important to keep track of, we're talking about human agency, not agency quite generically, but there were distinctive features of human agency, uh, features about the organ, its organization in particular over time that you got a better way of understanding if you took intention really seriously as a basic feature of the psychology under, underlying uh, human action. So that's my take on what was happening in the 80s. Thanks, Michael. So um, question about your first book. So your first book discusses the importance of recognizing intentions and the capacity of making plans as central to the human psychology of age. Can you briefly explain this idea? What are intentions? Why are they important? What would we lack if we were agents who couldn't plan? Uh, yeah, well, great. Thank you. Thank you for that great question. I, th I think my thinking about this, you could think of as having three parts. One is a kind of model of a certain kind of agency that I call planning agency, where the idea is it's a kind of agency that's available to resource limited agents like us. So here is important. We're talking about human agents and it's informed by kind of the theorists in the room as Herbert Simon, right? The emphasis on we need a theory of our practical thinking and agency that works for organisms like us that have these limits of time and attention and memory and so on. The planning, the idea about planning enabled you to get a picture of how we create organization over time in our lives 
that's in a way that fits with the, the limits we have. So for, in particular, we create, we construct, settle on uh, plans that are partial and fill them in as time goes by. The partiality is kind of inevitable given our resource limits. And that's, that's a basic way in which we create this cross-temporal organization in our lives. But then when you, once you, you have that idea available, you, it brings to the table the idea of distinctive forms of practical thinking that are involved in that kind of planning. And in my work, I've tried to understand those forms of practical thinking with two basic ideas. One is these prior, we settle on these prior plans to organize our activity over time. They're partial. They need to be filled in as time goes by. So they create a kind of framework for further practical thinking. So for example, when people talk about weighing of reasons, uh, which is uh, something we, we do, I, the planning picture sees this kind of weighing as taking place within a framework of the prior plan. So you have a plan about in getting through graduate school, and then you have to weigh the pros and cons of this particular course or that particular course, but it's framed by the prior plan. And this framing process involves distinctive norms of rationality. And I've emphasized uh, uh, norms of consistency of states within the what planned states, coherence, means and coherence, and stability over time. And then the conjecture is that intentions are at least one way of thinking about intention is there are states in this kind of planning system. So that's the basic thought. And then the thought is that though my interest in uh, this kind of planning agency got generated initially by thinking about organization over time, there are these other forms of organization in human practical lives that are fundamental. What do you mean by other forms of organization? Can you give us some examples? One is kind of small-scale social organization, say, when you uh, paint, paint a house together or sing a quartet together. There are also these larger forms of organization uh, that we see when we look at institutions like city councils or universities or companies or uh, legal systems. And then the question is, to what extent this feature, this conjectured feature of our agency, the fact that we're planning agents in the sense that I was describing earlier, help us understand not just the cross-temporal organization, but these other forms of organization that are so fundamental to our human lives. And then what that led me to was this idea that what I sometimes call the core capacity thesis, which is the idea that there's actually, it's actually interesting thought that I, I think is plausible that at the bottom of these different forms of human practical organization, interrelated but different forms of human practical organization are, for, are these underlying capacities for planning agency. And uh, so you can think of our capacity for planning agency as a kind of, as I call it, a core capacity. But to do that, you need resources, a number of theoretical resources, and we could talk some more about that. But one, let me just highlight, is this idea that goes back to uh, Paul Grice of creature construction, the idea of building up these, these forms of agency in sequence, as it were. And the idea is if you use those resources, you can construct models of these multiple forms of practical organization where with a bot where a basic the basic building block in the models are going to be these planning capacities. And so now you ask what would we not what what would happen if we didn't if we couldn't plan or something. Yeah. This so this is actually delicate. The conjecture uh, and it goes to something I call the strategy of sufficiency. The conjecture is this is a it's a kind of inference to the best explanation uh, which is subject to uh, 
further investigation. Uh, but the, the inference, the best, the idea is the best explanation of this web of forms of practical organization that characterize human lives takes us back to our planning capacities. Where that involves the thought that, that the planning capacities together with other elements of our practical psychologies suffice for these forms of organization. So, so it's the sufficiency that's really important to the theory. Are they necessary? Well, I don't know how to argue that they're necessary in the sense that you couldn't construct a system that was very, very different. And it may be that current work in AI is like that, you know, where these big giant databases uh, process in all sorts of ways that don't look like they correspond in a direct way to our planning. Maybe they do in a deep way, I don't know. So there may be multiple ways of getting these forms of organization. So uh, the claim isn't about necessity, but sufficiency. And then there's an inference to the best explanations that, well, at least in our, our human lives, as we understand them anyway, this is the way we get these forms of organization. A major topic in your work is self-governance. We're creatures that can act with a purpose. We can act on a plan but we're also creatures who can take a critical stance with respect to those things and all the sorts of things that motivate us. We can endorse or reject those motives. As you understand it, self-governance involves at least two ideas. One is the idea of a self, which you understand by means of an appeal to what you call a Lockean identity. A second idea concerns higher order policies and plans. Can you tell us a little bit about these two ideas and how they add up to a notion of self-governance? Yeah, that's great. Uh, so the way I'm thinking of the question about self-governance is the way of thinking about self-governance that's non-homuncular is the way I sometimes put it. So there isn't the kind of at the bottom, there isn't this self pulling the levers, but rather uh, to use something Harry Frankfurt once says, it's what's working is the systems we are. There's a system functioning in a complicated way that realizes, the design, as it were, the design specifications for self-governance. So it's self-governance without an irreducible self. That's what I think we want if we want to understand self-governance in a way that fits us into the natural causal order. So what are the attitudinal structures that are such that when they're doing the guiding, the agent is self-governed? What you need is a psychic economy that satisfies certain kind of as you might put it, design specifications. What? Well, on one hand, it needs to be the kind of economy such that you could think of it as, as realizing the, uh, the phenomenon of the agent governing, governing, not just the pushes and pulls leading downstream to action, but the agent is governing. Here, where we're going to try to understand the agent's directing, it's the agent who's doing this. Okay, even though in the end we don't want it, it's got to be non-homuncular. But also we want what the agent is doing is governing, not just directing. So we need some idea, the way I think governing involves the idea of applying standards and norms and thinking of considerations as counting in one way or another. So the idea is there's this, there's this dual design specification. One of systems that has the right kind of organization so that the way it's working constitutes the agent's direction, and not only that, but the agent's governance. And then that's what led me to these two pieces. So if I've got that right, then self-governed agents have to have functioning that satisfies two constraints, that there's governance and that it's the agent doing the governance. How does that work? If the, if the system, the conjecture was that 
a realization of those design specifications is a kind of planning system in which you've got plans or policies, which are plans at a kind of general level that are kind of reflective about what's going to count in the deliberation. These are these policies I sometimes call self-governing policies, policies about weights. And these policies would be part of a planning system that would have a lot of the features that we were talking about earlier about a planning system. And the thought was that these planning systems will tend to create cross-temporal organization, coordination, connection, continuity of the sort that on broadly locking views about the persistence of a person over time are going to help constitute the persistence of the agent over time, and that this makes them candidates for attitudes whose functioning will constitute the agent's direction. But also, since these plans include policies about weights, where policies about weights are policies about what's going to count in deliberation, these will be forms of agential direction that will, as it were, be deeply involved in or anchor deliberation, and so count as a kind of governance. So you get these planning systems with policies about weights, self-governing policies, which because of the way planning works, will tend to induce the kinds of locking and connections over time that support the idea that it's the agent who's governing, but they also have, as it were, the right kind of contents to count as governance, not just causal guidance. And that's how you put together the pieces to get self-governance without the homunculus. Your work on self-governance was often in conversation with the work of folks like Harry Frankfurt and Gary Watson, uh, who took themselves to be thinking about free will, at least in some of their early work on these kinds of questions. In your view, what's the relationship between self-governance and freedom of the will? I'm kind of unsettled here, really. I think that what Frankfurt and Watson were after, initially anyway, what I was after which I just, which I was described as a system whose functioning would realize the conditions for the agents governing. And then they had, I'm not, I, they didn't characterize it that way, but that's, that's how I interpret their proposals. The, the hierarchy was the desire. The idea was, well, well, I won't try to comment on Frankfurt, but the idea was that the hierarchy's desire proposal or the uh, evaluative judgment proposal from the uh, from Watson, one way to think about that is they're trying to characterize a psychic economy that's arguably, that arguably realizes the conditions for an agent's governance without an irreducible homunculus in the background. Okay. And I thought of myself, still think of myself as worrying about the same problem, but offering a, a different solution. So in that respect, what I want to say about self-governance is addressed to the question about what is it to act of your own free will, which was, of course, the Frankfurt's locution way back in that original paper. There are questions about freedom of will that it doesn't grapple with. Uh, it really grapples with the, with the question of how we could be fully embedded in a causal order, a causal order that includes minds, but still a causal order, deterministic or not, how we could be fully embedded in a causal order, deterministic or not, and still be self-governing agents. And that's my proposal is, is concerned with that question. It doesn't ask the question of whether or not if the causal, there's special problems raised by the causal order being deterministic or not. And that hasn't really been my focus. So that's, that's the limitation on the work, really. 
Michael, let me change gears and ask a question about your more recent work. Over the last few years, you have transitioned from thinking about the agency of individuals to collective forms of agency. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on collective agency? How does collective agency differ from individual agency? Is collective agency a mere aggregate of individuals doing their thing? The way it developed in my own thinking was first to think about small-scale shared agency, like quartets, uh, and then to ask whether or not what I wanted to say about the small-scale case in some sense scaled up to larger institutions, like a uh, club or a city council or a college or a corporation. Uh, these are obviously different phenomena. Quartets are different than General Motors. <laughs> uh, and both of them are different than a single person painting a house on an afternoon. So they're obviously different. The question is, what are their commonalities? How are they related? And a lot of my work in recent years is asked whether or not, really it, it goes back to what I was calling before the core capacity thesis. The thought is, hey, look, uh, first thing I can show you is if you take these planning structures and give the plans the right kind of contents and interconnections, there are a lot of details here that I won't try to talk about, what you get is a construction that will function in the ways that look like sh shared cooperative activity. Now notice there are two meta philosophical things going on here. One is the idea of getting a construction you put together these planned theoretic building blocks and you give them the right kind of contents, give them the idea of intending that it go, that we paint in part by way of your intention that we paint in meshing subplans. There's some technical stuff here that we could talk about. You give them the right kind of contents and interconnections, you, put, you construct shared intention, shared cooperative activity. So the two metaphilosophical ideas here are one is that the Gricean idea of constructing different forms of agency out of these building blocks. And the other, the strategy of sufficiency, that is the idea that I'm not telling you what's, necess what's necessary for people to act together cooperatively, but I'm giving you a model that's sufficient for that. And that model highlights the role of our plan. I've tried to see whether you could continue with that strategy in thinking about what are, what are different. I mean, different, you know, the different phenomenon of you know, city councils, clubs, companies, and the like. And I've been trying to follow the similar strategy in the sense of you have these you have these plan planning agents, you, you get the right kind of contents and interrelations, uh, and you can construct small scale shared intention, shared intentional activity, shared cooperative activity. And now can we take those resources and construct using Gricean strategy and the, the, the strategy of sufficiency, construct a model of this, a city council or a, or a, corp, a, a company. And uh, that's the, the jury's still out on that. So how do you think that story should go? Can we build up a story from individual planning agents to things like General Motors, city councils, universities, and so on? Okay, but I, I, this book that that Manuel mentioned at the beginning uh, that I'm currently trying to finish <laughs> uh, tries to give an affirmative answer to that question. What I want to emphasize in light of the way you put your, your, your question is the, these, this idea of construction of say, uh, so let's say an example of suppose there's a, 
a kind of a nonprofit organization, call it Medic Supply, who, that aims to distribute medical supplies across the globe as needed in various ways. Okay, so it's something a little, a smaller version of Doctors Without Borders. This is Medicine Without Borders or something. Okay, so if this kind of construction uh, were successful, you'd be able to think of what's going on as a web of interconnected planning agency that, that, that gets you certain forms of shared agency that gets you the kind of functioning characteristic of a, of a nonprofit like that. So in a way, these kinds of constructions have a kind of reductive face to them because you're, 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 the building blocks are going back down to um, planning agents. But the way I think of them is not as eliminative, but as constructive reductions. Okay, so the idea is this, look, there, though I haven't been able, I won't be able to defend this here, but think medic supply can be an intentional agent. It can intentionally do certain things as could Volkswagen when it intentionally deceived people regulators about uh, how it was testing the emissions control systems or something. That is these, these larger organized institutions can be intentional agents according to me, but we can think of their intentional agency as constructed out of these resources that I've been describing. So this is kind of a reductive picture, Michael, but is this simply the story of different individuals acting together or do we need to postulate a big collective entity? There really is the agency of medic supply or Volkswagen. And here's at least one way of thinking about what it consists of. So it's not, a, it really is something there, which is the intentional agency of Volkswagen or whatever. Uh, and now I'm gonna give you a model, a constructive model of that. In that respect, the, the, the approach is like the approach you get in a causal theory of action in the spirit of David Velleman's wonderful title, what happens when someone acts, right? So the idea, when you try to say what happens when someone acts, you're not trying to, the, the, the idea is not, well, people don't really act, it's just all this stuff happening. It's that people are acting and here's what it consists in. Okay. It looks like that's gotta be the strategy for a causal theory, a non-homuncular causal theory uh, of these various kinds of agential phenomena though there's a kind of reductive flavor to these constructions of these forms of social organization, quartets and uh, city councils. The idea is that these are efforts to, to say at least one potential realization of these phenomena, but the phenomena exist. I mean, it, they're not, you're not eliminating the phenomenon, you're showing how they're realized. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It was great chatting with you. It was great having you today. Thank you. This has been great fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Free Will Matters is part of the LATAM Free Will Agency and Responsibility Project. It is produced by Cero Setenta, thanks to a generous grant of the John Templeton Foundation, and with the support of Universidad de los Andes, and the University of California in San Diego. For more information, visit us at freewill.uniandes.edu.co. That is freewill.uniandes.edu.co. Thank you.